Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We could right now go to a restaurant and eat an entire gigantic chocolate cake. The first bite would be great. The right. second bite would be great. By the end of it, we'd be sick. And that's sort of how I was approaching like fame and money and alcohol and drugs. On today's show, we have an extremely exciting guest. You may know him from songs such as... If you haven't recognized this already, I'm speaking to Moby. He is a singer, writer, producer, entrepreneur, restaurateur, vegan, author, four times over. He's a mental health and animal welfare activist. And the list continues. I went to his studio to interview this remarkable human being about his life managing mental health and his journey into inspiring millions to see there is a different way to live. Moby, welcome to the Not Perfect podcast. Hi. Well, it's funny because this is ostensibly about mental health. Yeah. And generally, I think of myself as being a, a relatively sane person, <laughs> except this is the first time I've also been the engineer <laughs> for recording a podcast. <laughs> and I'm having anxiety about whether or not I'm a good or bad engineer, because also we're only using one microphone. So if anyone's listening, this is my caveat. If anyone's listening and they think it sounds unprofessional, I am to blame <laughs> because I volunteered my studio forgetting that I actually only have one microphone for us to use. So this is very old school. I assume like if we'd been doing a podcast in 1927, this is probably the technology we would have used. We're rocking the vintage. Yeah. We're going vintage. I, honestly, I'm so impressed and and it's, it's going to be golden. Um, so to kick off, we ask everyone the same three questions. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote, and there's so many. It's hard to pick one. The first one that comes to mind is, so I've been sober for about 10 years. And uh, there's a quote in the big book of AA. And the quote is so simple. It says, we stopped fighting everything and everyone. And I remember when I first read that, I was like, but, but what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Like, how do, how do I not fight? And, like, and I realized, oh, you can like work to change the world. You can work to change yourself, but it doesn't have to be contentious. It doesn't have to be argumentative. It doesn't have to be violent. Mm. And so I really love that quote. Um, I also, there's, I think it's a Rumi quote uh, it's one of the Sufi poets um, where he's talking about God and he says, like, keeping in mind God in the most general sense, like the spirit yeah. of the universe. Right. 
certainly not any de denomination, right. just to be very clear. Right. You know, and he says, without you, I would turn entirely to Thorn. Oh, wow. And it's just such an interesting, I'm like, oh, yeah, because like my idea, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, is like my idea of the divine is like a divine of healing mm. and life mm. and nourishing and, you know, and gentleness. Yeah. You know, and I think of like the worst parts of myself are the opposites of all of those things. Right. You know, the vicious, bitter, cynical parts of myself that... So I understand that, like, and that, that metaphor, that imagery of, like, turning to thorn. Yeah. You know. Gosh, that's really, um, that's a really powerful metaphor. And as we are all made up of shadow and light, such a nice reminder to move into your light rather mm -hmm. than your shadow. Thank you for sharing that. And how do you define happiness? Happiness is, for me, I'm trying to be succinct, but I guess it would be, joyful curiosity and purpose. Do you agree that happiness is a confusing word? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, in, in, here in the United States, and I think the, is the I, I should know my history better, in the Bill of Rights, um, it guarantees every person the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness, I feel like that has screwed us up more than anything. Right. You know, like the pursuit of like, because everyone, and I'm just, I'm, I'm even more guilty of this than anyone. The, the assumption that we all make that happiness will follow when you have the right collection of things. Mm -hmm. And when I say things, I don't just mean material things, but like career, relationship, money, material stuff as well. Like our culture is sort of based on that. And you and I both know this, like yeah. the people who have all of that stuff, they're miserable. Right. And the people who right. don't have it are miserable. Right. So if that's the case, you just have to look at the underlying assumption. Yeah. And really the opposite of that, I think, instead of thinking like, how can I get as much stuff for myself as possible? Right. It should be like an actual empirical assessment of what does create happiness. And also how much happiness can potentially be created. And what I mean by that is, yeah. and I don't want to sound too much like a grad student, but no. there, there is the sort of the contextual element of like, were these scared little weird monkeys alive for, <laughs> totally. yeah, were alive for a few decades on a planet that's 5 billion years old. Yes. We all get old, we all get sick, we all die. So like, if even if you have the best house in the world, even if you're, you know, Donald Trump and you have your name covered in gold and you're the president of the United States, mm -hmm. like you're still going to get sick and old and die. Yeah. Nothing prevents that. Yeah. And so happiness, there, there has to be that sort of the understanding of one, what does work for you or anyone as an individual, what really does create happiness. And usually it's small, gentle things. You know, totally. so and and I really find like the people I know who are happiest have a sense of purpose, yeah. have a sense of community, yeah. take care of their health and have an, a sort of they've made peace with aging and dying. Yeah. In your day, what is a small thing that brings you great joy? Uh, there's so many things that are like small things that bring me great joy. One is 
simply being around, and I sound like such a hippie, but like just being around nature. Yeah. You know, just like, and part of it is the beauty of it. Mm. Part of it is that nature doesn't expect anything of us. Yeah. You know, like it's not social media that's screaming at us. It's not advertisements that's de- that are demanding our attention. Yeah. It's not friends who are, you know, like sometimes very annoying. Um, you know, like it's just... <laughs> we will have an annoying friend. <laughs> it's just nature's just there. Yeah. You know, and like when you're in the presence of nature, it's there. When you're not in the presence of nature, it's there. Like it's that sort of, it has that benign indifference towards us. I think this is, that's such a beautiful point. I think this is why it's so upsetting to see what we're doing to something that really expects nothing from us aside from to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like in a way, the fact that we're like, we're destroying, aggressively destroying the only home that we have and we're destroying everything beautiful about this home. Yeah. In a way, you could argue that it's like existential revenge. Yeah. Like humans are so angry that they can't figure out the human condition, Mm. you know, and that, you know, the Trump approach to life doesn't work of like, make money, marry a supermodel, become president, and you're still miserable. And the end result is this fury, you know, these people like these corporate guys are just so angry. And so it's like, when they go in to like, burn down the rainforest or destroy pristine environments, I feel like there's almost like, fury and hostility behind it right like they're getting their revenge on nature for the fact that nature doesn't really care about us that much (laughs) so true it's like kind of trying to get a revenge on an ex-boyfriend that does not care or an ex-partner that just does not care and we've all we've all been there you know (laughs) totally it's like wow if they could only see me now they'd be so upset and then you realize like oh they don't care like they're actually in new zealand they're six thousand miles away and they've moved on with their life. Why haven't I? Yeah. 100%. Couldn't agree more. It's a great metaphor. If we go back to the early 2000s, you sold out more shows than Countable. You won more awards than you had space to put them. A global fan base that followed you everywhere. Anyone looking on would think you had it all. But you have bravely and with inspiring vulnerability spoken up about this not being entirely true in your latest memoir. What made you want to write this book? Well, I wrote this book sort of on one hand selfishly to gain a better understanding of myself and my the life that I've had and the assumptions I've had um, so I've written two memoirs mm. and both of them were largely written for that reason you know with the idea that if no one ever reads them at least I gained insight and awareness through the process of writing them Interesting. but then also and we are sort of touching on this that the culture we live in the species that we are like everything we're doing that's wrong is based on wrong assumptions, you know? And Can you expand that a bit more? Meaning, we're sort of talking about this, that, you know, the assumption that if you had what that other person has, you'll mm-hmm. be happy. Mm-hmm. Without actually looking at the fact that that other person is miserable. Right. You know, like, like, someone's, so like someone's like, oh, if only I had what... Um, Avicii had, if only I had what Kurt Cobain had, if only I had, the list goes on and on, like people who were given everything and it didn't fix anything. In fact, it made things worse. But yet 
99.9% of the people on the planet are still trying to get what, has. what those people had. And I wanted to sort of show firsthand in this book that I expected fame and money to fix all of my issues. And for a minute, it did. You know, like I had a brief moment about 20 years ago where I was like, I could drink without getting hung over. I could do drugs without too many consequences. I could be promiscuous without too many consequences. I could go on tour, like for a brief minute. It's, I imagine it's sort of like the first time someone smokes crack. Yeah. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to get back to that original high. Yeah. And so I had that experience of like fame and alcohol and drugs and money worked for a minute. And then they stopped working because... Obviously, unhealthy things are not designed to sustain you, you know, and that works for relationships, that works for food, that works for alcohol, drugs, thoughts, anything. Yeah. Like, it's really easy, as we all know, like, we could right now go to a restaurant and eat an entire gigantic chocolate cake. Right. The first bite would be great. The right. second bite would be great. By the end of it, we'd be sick. Totally. And that's sort of how I was approaching, like, fame and money and alcohol and drugs. Was there an insatiable desire for more, more, more? Or did you just want to keep it where it was at? Yeah, there's one funny... I, 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 I feel weird quoting myself but or paraphrasing myself. There's In the book, I talk about this, and I sort of... As things started to fall apart, personally, spiritually, professionally... I wrote a little thing in the book saying, like, all I wanted was to be hugely famous, drunk, high, adored every minute for the rest of my life. Like, why was that such a hard thing for the universe to give me? <laughs> and, of course, obviously, that's absurd. But, yeah, I definitely... So it wasn't more, more, more. It was, you know, finding... Oh, I wanted to find a way to sustain the things that protected me from my fear, from my vulnerability, from my issues, and from the human condition. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to anthropomorphize the universe, right. but I almost feel like the universe was like, oh, no, you don't understand. No one is protected from those things. Yeah. You, can't, you can't wall yourself off from any of those things. You have to go into them. And so it's almost like the further I tried to, like, the further I tried to protect myself from any of my fear, issues, vulnerability, the more the universe like was like, no, I'm sorry, you have to actually deal with them. You know, and and going on tour and taking tons of cocaine and drinking and sleeping with strangers is not the best way of dealing with your issues. It's so interesting how collectively we do think fame and money will protect us. And which is not, I also want to be clear, it's not to malign fame money and etc. Like some people are really good at being famous. Yeah. You know, like some people seem to be pretty healthy and well adjusted and famous and rich. I cannot off the top of my head think of who one of those like maybe yeah. Bono. Bono's the only right. person I can think of who seems like he's really good at being famous and relatively well adjusted. Yeah. Um apart from that, most I mean we've between the two yeah. of us we've met a lot of very wealthy, very famous people. Like struggling. They're either miserable narcissists or miserable not narcissists you right. know like and, and and it's that that greedy selfishness and the reason i'm so familiar with it is because i was just as guilty of it 
Mm-hmm. You know, I was that horrible, selfish, materialistic person. And where do you think that came from? I mean, why do you think you wanted it? Part of it's our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, everything in our culture up until recently has sort of reinforced that idea that like you should... And you'll be loved and heard and seen. Yeah, you should want more, you should get more, you should have as much status as possible. I mean, there's definitely a hereditary component to it. Like if you look at evolutionary psychology and the behavior of other of primates, you know, like status and access to material wealth among apes and monkeys definitely serves them pretty well. Mm. So like we've inherited that. But then also, you know, like if you grow up insecure and if you grow up afraid and then you discover fame, alcohol, drugs, and promiscuity, it's the first time, at least in my life, it was the first time I didn't feel afraid or vulnerable. Right. You know? And it was the, like, you know, that perfect moment in 2000 when I was on ecstasy, cocaine, champagne, vodka, and had just met someone and was going home with them. Like, for that brief moment, I felt like everything was okay. Yeah. You know? But, of course, going back to the chocolate cake analogy. Right. The first bite might be great, but by the end, it makes you sick. And this brings me to, during that time, you have these uh, iconic lyrics, don't nobody knows my troubles but God. Now, these words rang so true to me and to so many because we're so used to bottling things up about how we're feeling. So if you don't mind me sharing, what troubles were were plaguing your mind then and why was why didn't you choose to share this with anyone? Do you, did you think people didn't understand or maybe did you not understand your own problems? It's such an interesting question because, yeah, if like if we had been talking 21 years ago when I wrote that song, I, I mean, I, I had been a philosophy major at college. I was raised by academics. I thought of myself as being a very self-aware, very insightful, smart person. And so I would have given you an answer that I would have fully believed. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, that answer would have been very ill-informed and delusional. Um, And then it makes me wonder like, okay, 20 years from now when I look back at today, Mm -hmm. will I think that I was just as ill-informed and delusional? Right. Um, So back then, I, I mean, okay, I don't want to sound again too like much like a, a weird esoteric grad student, but like, it's almost like if you think of the difference between Newtonian physics and 21st, 20th, 21st century quantum mechanics. You know, um, Newtonian physics, and oddly enough, Isaac Newton understood the limitations of his physics. Like he sort of like said, like, I'm, st- I'm describing standing at the edge of an ocean, but I can't describe the ocean, mm. you know? And in the 20th century, a lot of physicists have become better at sort of looking at what the ocean might be, meaning right. what is the actual nature of existence and we, we have no idea the more they look the less they know but what i mean by this is newtonian physics traditionally dealt with the observable physical world mm-hmm. you know yeah that a brick weighs something that if you drop a brick on your foot it will hurt your foot mm-hmm. and so it's very it's very very physical right, very 2d i can see that i yeah. can touch that i can, I see can it. feel I can, yeah yeah like basically trusting all of our senses, saying like, oh, this tastes a certain way, this smells a certain way, this has a certain weight, this has a certain temperature. And so my concerns 20 years ago when I wrote that song 
were in line with that. Wow. You know, I was like, meaning I was thinking, okay, if I have the right apartment, yeah. the right spouse, the right group of friends, the right bank account, the right this, I'll be set and I'll be happy, which is kind of like the Newtonian approach. Like, oh, if I can observe all of these physical properties, I'll be able to understand it. Then along comes quantum mechanics and they realize, oh, none of those physical properties mean anything. Mm -hmm. And then I was, because I, I was able to get a lot of the stuff I wanted and realized it didn't work, I was able to get to a point where I was like, oh, the troubles are not the lack of stuff that we have. It's the attitude that we bring towards wanting that stuff, you know, and the assumptions that we have. So it's like the problem isn't like, oh, I don't have the perfect relationship. The problem is the underlying assumptions. My belief system. Yeah, the beliefs around wanting that perfect relationship. And when I say problem, I don't mean to be critical because we all have it. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to not fully indulge in the very obvious accessible tropes of our culture, you know. Right, totally. I mean, maybe you go back to like, you know, like the Ten Commandments or the Bible. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, that kind of eating, like they're just very human, like physical desires. Yep. Fascinating. I totally understand it in the sense that it's difficult for anyone to look into our mind and see the kind of workings of our mind, but we are also like, you know, for, yeah. for people to understand our troubles is incredibly difficult because as you know, mental health is silent. So you can meet someone yeah. and they're like, I'm totally good, I'm fine. You look at their life, you like got a great house, they've got a great family. One earth could they be sad about? And mm -hmm. so to me, that line resonated as well because of that, just from a reminder of, you know, how locked up we really keep our troubles and how important it is to share it probably oh, with other yeah. people and not just God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got sober about 10 and a half years ago. Mm. And one of my favorite things about sobriety was going to AA meetings. Yeah. And I don't, if people can get sober however they want. Like, I'm not saying you can only get sober through AA. It just worked for me. But you would go to AA meetings and you would see, like, movie stars, rock stars, homeless people, billionaires, all these people where if you saw them on the street, you would see the facade. But then in these rooms, the rooms of AA, you would see them crying, you would see them being vulnerable, you'd see them being honest. And you, and for me, that was when I realized like, oh, unless you are a true psychopath, the human condition affects you, Yeah. you know? And it's so interesting, like even now, like I'll go to an AA meeting and still people try to maintain a facade. Yeah. And I'll look around and I'll be like, you know, like the tough guys, the cool kids, you know, the very successful people and remembering like, oh, most of the people here have at one point or another tried to kill themselves. Yeah. Everybody here has cried themselves to sleep on multiple occasions, you know, so, and it's just worth remembering that like yeah. no one except for psychopaths is exempt from the human condition. And feeling, and feeling yeah. emotion, and, and feeling emotions. And I think what is so lovely, just about even this conversation right now, it just reminds you how important compassion for yourself, but for other human beings are, because we're all struggling. And mm -hmm. I think this is something that we've tried to ignore or not talk about for so many years. And we're finally, you know, through your work, especially maybe in, in your books, you're allowing people the confidence to also speak up and say, oh, yeah, I've, I've struggled too. Yeah. And, and the compassion part, that is arguably the hardest aspect 
of all of this, you know, because we live in this culture of hate and anger and accusation and bitterness and cruelty and cynicism. And all of those things are so satisfying and so easy to indulge in. And a lot of them almost come with like a patina of righteousness. Mm. And I'm just as guilty of that as well. Like when mm. I get upset at Trump and the Republicans, like mm. I feel righteous. Mm. But underneath it is that seduction of anger. Mm. Oh, God, that's a good seduction of anger. It's you know? so true. And, the, and judgment. And yeah, it's in, I sometimes think about judging and being, and being judgmental and how inherently flawed... It is. Like, I want to judge everybody. Like, I just want to go out into the world and, like, criticize everyone and judge everyone and be convinced that they're all idiots and I'm better, you know. But the problem with judging is to judge, you have to be omniscient. Mm. You know, you have to, like, that's the only way you could possibly judge a person is to have true omniscience, meaning you would have to know every single thing that person has experienced and you would also have to know everything they're going to do from this point forward, right. you know, it's really the only point. way you could ever, like, that, that, like, otherwise the judgment is completely flawed, you know, like. It's like judging an iceberg. You've got no idea what's underneath. Yeah, exactly. Like you, like if you judge the Titanic before it hits the iceberg, <laughs> right. you're like, wow, this is the greatest ocean liner ever built. Like, mm. oh, you know, your judgment might be a little flawed. Yeah. You know, and I just had enough amazing experiences where I've judged someone or something and been proven completely wrong. And it's so, like, I, so I still want to judge. I still want to go out into the world and criticize and judge everyone, except I've been shown on so many occasions that whenever I've tried to really judge, I've been completely mistaken. To break that habit, though, is hard because I think we're all slightly wired to judge mm -hmm. because we want to make ourselves feel good. So... Oh, it's control. I mean, if... And, and at least for me, like, when I look at, like, my anger, my cynicism, my bitterness, like, some of it is, and it's tricky because some, there, there are a lot of things in the world that we should be a little outraged about. Yes. You know, like, cutting down the rainforests, yes. destroying the only home we have, you know, everything we do with farm animals, you know, like, everything we do with refugees, like, it's, there's a lot of really bad stuff. And it's almost like a superhuman ability to have justified outrage that's not irrational anger, mm. you know? And I'm just slowly learning some of those skills. Like, instead of saying, like, how much of my reaction is just my reaction and how much of it is a justified response to what's going on around me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right. And also, I suppose this actually is a, a big question a lot of us are struggling with. When the news is so full of negativity and we're receiving every single day such outrageous mm-hmm. events, um, how do you make the response productive and something that we don't just all remain in hysteria and then we're all paralyzed by our hysteria, hysteria maybe justified hysteria and outrage, but yet we're also potentially a bit powerless at the same time, so it's not really serving us the outrage? I guess... That's, I mean, I can only speak for myself. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, your question made me think of before I got sober, I used to have huge parties, you know, like really crazy drug-fueled, alcohol-fueled, degenerate parties. And I would wake up in the morning and I would look around my loft. I lived on Mott Street in New York and my loft would be a disaster. You know, there's <laughs> like just... Vodka bottles and drug detritus and garbage everywhere. And like your first thought, like you're hung over and you're looking at your apartment and it's a complete mess and you look at the enormity of it and your first thought is, I just want to leave and burn down my apartment. Yeah. Like it will like, <laughs> but then what I found, the only thing you can do is you start small. Yeah. So you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to clean this kitchen counter. Because that's manageable, that's easy. And then you clean the kitchen counter, and once you do that, you're like, okay, maybe I'll now I'll clean the rest of the kitchen. Mm. And so it's like dealing with the problems in a sort of small, manageable way. You know, it makes me think of like in, in AA, we have the serenity prayer. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And usually what that means is everything in the world around me. Yeah. You know, and the, the courage to change the things I can, which is like, my thinking around it, you know? Well, that's really powerful. And so it's it's that, like, but that's, I mean, it's very, it's a weird skill when you can start saying, like, oh, how much of my reaction is justified, is helpful? How much of it's hurting me? Mm, you know, like, it also question. made me think, like, years ago, I tried to be a kickboxer. Um, it did not work out because I wasn't very good at it. Um, but I remember one of the first times I was sparring with someone, I got so exhausted, but unnecessarily exhausted. Like I was just like weirdly exhausted and I couldn't figure out why. And I realized the reason why I was exhausted was not physical exertion. It was tension. Like basically I was holding so much tension that I, my energy was depleted very quickly. And so then when I... Would, in the future would spar with people, I would make sure I'd just like to relax everything beforehand and I wouldn't get tired. That is such an interesting point, especially in relation to the stress epidemic we're all in. Yeah. We're all experiencing burnout, we're all exhausted, and it's true because we're not really practicing that, like relaxing through our stress in order for us to kind of protect our energy going forward. And it's, yeah, I very much agree. And it's also what's nice is stress reduction is actually surprisingly easy, and you can do it yourself. What do you do to reduce your stress? Oh, I mean, everything from, it can be the most basic stuff. Listen to music. Mm. Read a nice book. Go for a walk. Um, do some light exercise. Do some meditation that, that you actually enjoy. 
you know, not don't do meditation that adds stress. You know, do like, like stress reduction meditation. Um, eat a beautiful, healthy meal without checking your phone. Yeah. Like, call a friend and ask how they're doing and just listen. You know, like, mm. but all these things are, even just the most simple thing for stress reduction, lie down. Yeah. Just don't, don't even have to do anything. Like, just like, lie down. And the moment you lie down, your body sends messages to your brain like, oh, we're relaxed, we're okay. You know, it might not be immediate, but like, Everyone has the ability, for the most part, to lie down. You know, it's really interesting. It, it's the hardest thing. The hardest thing it feels like when you, when it comes to stress reduction, is just the, that first decision to giving ourselves permission to relax, mm -hmm. to go for a walk, and 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 say it's okay. I can leave whatever I think I have to do and go for that walk. Yeah, it's so especially because I don't know about you or the people listening, but like we have that barrage of stimuli, of stimulus from the moment we wake up. You know, yes. people wake up, they check their phone. Yes. Then they jump in the shower, they get out of the shower, they check their phone. I feel like if, like the new iPhones that are waterproof, people will start checking their phones in the shower. <laughs> um, That's so true. And then they like run into the kitchen, have coffee and like a sugar donut and then check their phone. <laughs> and then they like run out of the door rush to work, like either get like get in a car, sit in traffic, or go like cram yourself into public transportation with other people. And again, like barraging yourself with more stimuli. Mm -hmm. Then you get to work and it's coffee and busyness. Yes. And then you have a break, you check your phone. Yes. And it's so it's this the brain just gets so addicted to, like quite literally I think, addicted to that level of stimuli. To the point where like taking two minutes away from stimuli is painful to a lot of people. And it's, right. and it's learning to maybe instead of like beat yourself up for being addicted to your phone and to coffee and what have you, just find stimuli that is, is healthier. Yes. You know, like pet a dog, pet a cat. Right, because then you have your oxytocin rather than yeah. these spikes of dopamine. Exactly. Or cortisol. And yeah. Talk to friends, walk through nature without listening to anything, without checking your phone. You know, like, yeah. just like, so you're, you're not trying to go from being like a phone caffeine addicted person to being an enlightened Zen monk. Like, I think a lot of people will do that. They're like, okay, I'm putting down my phone and now I'm going to meditate and think about nothing. That's not how the brain works. The, you can, the brain likes when you replace stuff. So, you know, replace the phone with a dog. Right. You know, right. replace caffeine with an orange just for a minute and see if it works. That's a great tip, actually, because I think this that feeling of abstinence is is often the route people go. It's like, I'm going to give it all up. And yeah. it's so extreme. And then, of course, you know, we all just relapse and whatever it is. Um, but that idea of replacing is it's a really smart tip. Um, so... If we go back to your book, in 2008, you hit rock bottom mm -hmm. and you wanted to take your own life. Mm -hmm. Would you mind talking to us about what was going through, I suppose, your mind during that point and how that kind of unfolded? Yeah. the So, I mean, yeah, pre-sobriety, like the year or two before sobriety, there were a lot of very dark moments where I just simply wanted to die. Mm. In fact... Almost every morning I would wake up, like the night before I would have 20 drinks and a whole bunch of cocaine and then like 
at seven or eight in the morning, take Xanax and Vicodin mm. and try and sleep until 6 p.m. And I'd wake up and I'd be so disappointed that I hadn't died in my sleep. Wow. Like, I actually think I must have cockroach DNA because, like, a lot of the people around me were dying mm. from drinking less and doing fewer drugs. And I'm not a particularly strong person. I was like, why do I keep, why was I, why did I survive that? Yeah. Um, but the suicide attempts and just ideations was based on like pain, um, hopelessness, but also punishment. You know, like that idea of like, I'm going to punish myself because I've done such a bad job of trying to figure out how to live. Yes. And then, of course, the sort of melodramatic aspect of like, oh, and I will control this narrative. Mm. You know, because a lot of like self-loathing and whatever, you feel like things are out of your control. And I think suicide obviously ultimately is, an ex for many people, an expression of control. Yeah. You know, when you feel like everything around you has been taken away from you or is out of your control. Like it's that one final thing you can do to sort of prove to the world that you were in control. Right. I'm sure for some people, like I've never had true clinical depression. Mm. I've been depressed, but I've never had like some friends of mine who suffer from true clinical depression where it's very neurochemical and like yeah. they'll get in bed and stay there for three days. I've never had that. Yeah. So I think some people actually who are clinically depressed kill themselves because every second is excruciating. Right. I cannot speak to that. Right. You know, like I've, like I've dealt with other issues, but luck, like I've never had that. Like the people actually have to deal with that. Yeah. It's like, it seems like there's a difference between like a bad headache and a migraine. Right. Like my friends who have migraines, I don't even know what that's like. My friends who have been clinically depressed, I don't know what that's like, you know? Mm. So, but yeah, it's a, self-loathing and control and and yeah and the hopelessness of like you look forward and you just don't see anything changing mm. the problem being as we talked about earlier is it's no one's able to predict the future you know and the future sometimes can be very surprising mm. you know like the future sometimes is a continuation of the past and sometimes it's absolutely a break from the past and you won't know which one of those is going to be the case unless you're alive to experience it. What um, would you say um, was, is your kind of spiritual understanding of that moment looking back? Because to your point of having cockroach DNA, mm -hmm. like in a way you were really like chosen to live, you know? Did, did, you, feel the, did you ever feel this sense of... I have a, my life has a real purpose. Like I need to be on this earth. I have no idea. It would make me very happy to agree with you and say yes. Right. But the truth is, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. so it might be, yes, that my life has purpose or it might just be that I do actually have cockroach DNA and I just sort <laughs> of like somehow lived through, you know, all the attempts I made to try and end my life. Um, both passive and active attempts, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. So after that event, you then really committed to an entire life change where you really committed to healing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what has been the most impactful things that you've done in your journey of healing? Uh, yeah. One, I mean, obviously, 
And it makes me think, I'm not a doctor, but it makes me think of like maybe what a doctor would do with someone who was brought into an emergency room. Mm -hmm. You know, suppose someone's brought into an emergency room and they're bleeding. Yeah. The first thing you do is like stop the bleeding, mm -hmm. you know? So like for me, it was the first thing I had to do was like stop filling myself with toxic chemicals. And yeah. did you think this all by yourself? Like, was there anyone that you called upon that said, right, Moby, like, you've got to stop? Or was this just it, it, waking up one day I, saying... I, I mean, I had been hungover and depressed and suicidal and sick thousands of times. And I finally accepted, like, oh, this isn't getting better. Right. You know, in fact, it's getting worse. No one had to tell me that. Like, the evidence, the mountain of evidence was right in front of me. Um, so then I stopped filling myself with alcohol and drugs and, and then I mean, start... that's a hard process. It, it, I mean, yeah, that's why so many people don't ever do it. Mm. Um, but so I figured out to do that. What gave you the strength? Uh, it basically that, again, it's evidence. Mm. So it wasn't, it was that I felt so bad physically spiritually emotionally doing all the drugs and drinking you know like like it, it just it was it was I couldn't think straight I was depressed everything was terrible and I just and I couldn't find anything that indicated that that was getting better right and so I just had to stop mm -hmm. um and then slowly for me it was like the combination of like doing the 12 steps yeah meditating getting healthier. Did you find meditating excruciatingly hard when you've had a very busy mind of full of like self-loathing thoughts and suddenly you're now meditating and you're alone with your mind? Oh, meditating sucks. <laughs> meditating is like, I, like I, it's, it's very frustrating to me that like a lot of the schools of meditation people try to conform to mm. are very old and say nothing to people in the 21st century. Right. You know, like, and obviously people who can do those types of meditation, you know, people who can go on a, like a week-long silent retreat, God bless. Mm. Most people can't do that. Mm. And I really feel like there's, there's an AA quote that I love, which is, to thine own self be true. And that is one of the hardest things for us to learn, which means like, for like for me for you for everyone like what are we doing out of a sense of obligation what are we doing because we think it's what we're supposed to do what we think will make other people happy um will make god happy like it's a sense of like living in a way for other people and like when i first started trying to meditate that's exactly what i was doing i was like oh you know, the good meditators can sit for 20 minutes and not have a thought. I should be able to do that. And mm. I hated it. And as a result, I never, I stopped doing it. Mm. Um, so I slowly learned that, like, it's just better to do a meditation that you love yeah. for five minutes than to never meditate. You know, so find a meditation that you actually like and don't meditate to make God happy. Don't meditate to make your meditation teacher happy. Don't meditate <laughs> right. to feel smug or superior. Meditate because you enjoy it and you get benefit from it. And if you don't enjoy it and don't get benefit from it, you're not. You're simply not going to do it. Right. Um, and, and then in terms of self-care, it's this slowly figuring stuff out. Right. You know, through information, through evidence, 
Um, Did you change your life quite dramatically? For example, I don't know, change the people you're hanging out with or change the where you were living or did you make any kind of big changes like that where you thought I can just need to sever these ties with this kind of old life I was living I mean in sobriety I definitely learned that I mean I had friends who I was going out with six or seven nights a week and once I got sober I realized oh I don't actually have that much in common with them right so it wasn't so much a conscious desire to like sever ties Mm -hmm. it was more just realizing like oh Unless it's 3 a.m. and we're both drunk and high, we don't really have anything to talk about. You know, <laughs> right. the same way like I used to go to bars constantly and nightclubs mm-hmm. constantly. Once I got sober, I realized that like bars and nightclubs when you're sober are terrible. Right. You know, they're like loud, smelly, disgusting spaces. When you're drunk and high, they're paradise. Yeah. So I, I didn't cut myself off from bars and nightclubs. I just had to admit I don't like going to them anymore. Yeah. Um, there's oh one very interesting thing I think is. In early sobriety, I went to a bar and I was having such a hard, it's like I was two weeks sober and I was having such a hard time because it was a bar that I loved and I'd had some wonderful times there and I was sitting there and I was uncomfortable and I was miserable and I felt like in purgatory because I was like, I'd given up alcohol and drugs, but I didn't know what was going to replace them. And I was like, just scared. And I went to the bathroom and this was the coolest thing Someone in gold paint in the bathroom had written graffiti that said, trust your struggle. Oh, that's beautiful. And I was like, I took a picture of it. And like, whenever I doubted what I was doing, I just looked at that and I was like, okay. And I would say this to you, to everybody, like what you're struggling with right now might not make any sense, but it probably will as time passes if you stick with it. It's kind of like, like building a house, you know? Or like a yoga practice. Like think of like the first five times someone does a yoga practice and you can't touch your toes and you're terrible at it. Like, but you trust it and you keep doing it and eventually you get good at it. So beautiful. That's a, I've never heard that before. That is... I didn't make it up as some, you know, maybe God had been in the bathroom before me doing graffiti. <laughs> I don't know. Just doing a little message for you. If you could give every 18-year-old a tool that you've learned in the past... 25 years what would that tool be to help with greater mental well-being it's almost like a bunch of little tools like first and foremost try not to do things that have permanent consequences you know like stay away from the drugs that potentially have permanent consequences um you know don't have children with someone you don't love and respect and trust you know like just try to really not screw things up too bad right you know screw up but just try the ones that really change everything yeah we all make mistakes Mm. mistakes are great like we learn from our mistakes and like people learn so much more from mistakes and failure than they do from success you know success just makes you think you're doing things fine failure and mistakes you can actually like strategically learn from and then i would say i mean i'm just thinking like if I look back at my life, the biggest mistake I made that I actually resent or regret to an extent is sacrificing my own well-being for other people. Mm. You know, and I would say this, there is no nobility in that. Mm. I mean, it is if you're working with lepers in India, by all means, that's noble. But if you're in a relationship and you're only staying out of obligation, that's not noble. 
you know, and if you're going to a friend's party and you truly don't like that person and respect them, there's no nobility in that, you know, like it's that thing, as I said, like the AA thing of like to thine own self be true. Yes. Because by doing like, so have care for yourself in every sense of the word, because yeah. then you can actually go out into the world and be of service. Yes. You know, you can't pour from an, an empty cup, yeah. as they say. And I just think like, I mean, the number of times I've like stayed in relationships out of a sense of obligation or, I mean, of course, I've been very good at being selfish, yes. but it's the like compromising values and health and well-being for other people's ideas of what you should be doing. Yeah. And like if there's a way, if anybody can move beyond that, that should be goal number one. You know, like, yeah, to thine own self be true. I feel like you have experienced so many different elements of humanity. You know, you've met incredibly successful people. And you've also met, like, people, like, right at the beginning. And if an alien was to come down and ask you, describe humans and the human experience, from the life you've led, how do you respond to him or her? I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, what it makes me think of is I was watching a BBC nature documentary and it was about a watering hole in Africa during a drought. And so this watering hole, all the animals who normally wouldn't interact with each other came to this watering hole. So the water hole is filled with crocodiles and hippos surrounded by lions and jaguars and like all these terrifying creatures. And the water, as you can imagine, is disgusting like just filled with hippo and alligator poop. And like just every creature there for the most part is capable of like killing and eating whatever they can get their hands on or their mouth on. And there's a little bush near the water and hiding in the bush were four little monkeys. <laughs> and these monkeys were obviously terrified. They had no defenses. And so what they would do is they would run to the water scoop up a handful of like pee and poop filled water and run back to their bush. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, those are our ancestors. You know, these terrified monkeys drinking disgusting water who are probably starving to death. Mm. And if you look at our culture, everything we're doing is a product of that. Fear. Fear and lack. You know, like, mm. like those monkeys, if you said to them like, oh, we can give you a world where you can have as many calories as you want. Of course, they'd never stop eating. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And those monkeys were scared and defensive of everything. It's not surprising that fast forward hundreds of thousands of years, we get in fights over parking spaces. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I would, so, I would, so I would just say to those aliens, I'd see like, see those monkeys? Just hit the fast forward button and that's us. I couldn't agree more. We have this survival brain and that is such a great answer to that question. Do you then focus on how do you change your mentality and how do we change our collective mentality to one of abundance that allows us to not be living like scared monkeys? Do you think that's possible? I hope so. And part of it is, especially in this culture, is like, I mean, I've had this experience so many times where like my brain has been hijacked by anxiety worry, fear, anger, and I'm always completely ignoring what's right in front of me. You know, like for example, I'll be lying in bed, and in the middle of the night, anxious, worried, stressed, ignoring the fact that like I'm in a beautiful bed, 
mm. with clean, comfy sheets mm. in a safe house with clean water and food in a neighborhood that's pretty safe and pretty nice. Like, I mean, there are lots of people in the world who have like justified anxiety and worry because they don't have enough to eat. They don't have mm -hmm. clean water. They don't feel safe. But for most of us, everything around us is great. Yeah. You know, like we are basically safe yeah. and we are fed and we are comfortable and, you know, and it's sort of interrupting the anxiety and the worry to remind ourselves like, okay, what's actually going on right now in my immediate, you know, my immediate circumstances. Do you have a gratitude practice you do every day? Not every day, but I try to. Um, and there's one, a friend of mine taught me this one that I really like, which is you find something you're grateful for and then you list two or three reasons why you're grateful for it. And the listing the reasons why actually sort of like makes the gratitude pra practice even deeper. Totally, because then you start really kind of feeling that energetic shift because a gratitude yeah. energy level is very different from a kind of fearful energy level. Oh, without it's the exact opposite of it. I mean, but it's one thing I found like if I say like, oh, I'm grateful that I have a refrigerator full of food. But if I say like, I'm grateful to have a refrigerator full of food and here's why, mm. you know, because the food in there is all organic and very healthy. Mm. And the food in there is also very delicious. Mm. And the food in there prevents illness and sustains me, like at that point, the gratitude has just become a lot deeper. 100%. Who's made the biggest impact on your life and why? Hmm. That's a, it's a really good question. I, and I, I don't know. Um, oddly enough, and again, this is just my own experience, would be Bill Wilson, the guy who started Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, just because... The thing with AA that people need to understand is there's nothing proprietary to AA. Like everything in AA has been borrowed from other traditions. Yeah. You know, like they borrowed from Jungian psychology. They borrowed from Buddhism. They borrowed from Judeo-Christian uh, traditions. And also in AA, they never say that what they're doing is right. You know, so the fact that he crafted this program that borrows the best bits of all these other traditions, yeah. but also says like, hey... If you don't like AA, that's fine. Yeah. If you don't, if you want to take bits and leave the others behind, that's fine. And also, as time passes, you'll know more than we do. So there's no such thing as like canonical. Mm. I mean, some people would like, say oh, there the is. the master. Yeah, there's no master. There's no Ten Commandments. I mean, there's the 12 steps, but the 12 steps change and the 12 steps are different for each person. Wow. So I'd say Bill Wilson, you know, this weird New England bottomed out narcissistic drunk who somehow cobbled together this spiritual practice that is completely anarchic and changing. And you don't have to actually be having, you, anyone can go to AA. Most, some, yeah, I mean, there's 12-step programs for just about everybody. Yeah. Um, addiction definitely helps because without, it's kind of like the only way someone is going to really like get healthy is mm. if they have a health scare. Yes. The only way someone's going to commit themselves to doing spiritual work is if they bottom out. Yes. You know, so it's the beauty of... So there's a real desire there. Yeah. Like, I'm so grateful to be an alcoholic because if I hadn't bottomed out as an alcoholic, I never would have done any of the work. You know, I'd still be... I'd be... Because I'm 54, like, I'd be getting hair implants and I'd be trying to <laughs> produce some pop star's record and I'd be on doing a DJ residency in Reno pretending that I'm not 54 like it's just like 
And I'd still be angry at the world for not giving me what I wanted. Yeah. And so, like, I'm so grateful that I was broken of that. Yeah. I know we don't have much time left, so I would love for you to be able to share. And you're a passionate vegan. And I am someone who's definitely on the transition. And mm -hmm. um, why, what are the benefits of being a vegan? Well, I've been, I've been vegan now for 32 years. Mm -hmm. um, and for me... First and foremost, it's I love animals, mm -hmm. and I just simply cannot in good conscience be involved in any practice or anything that causes animal suffering. Mm -hmm. That's my bedrock. Right. But then also the fact that, you know, animal agriculture is the third leading cause of climate change. Mm -hmm. It's the number one cause of rainforest deforestation. It causes cancer, diabetes, obesity, heart disease. It's responsible for 75% of antibiotic resistance. It's responsible for up to 50% of water use, etc., etc. It just goes on and on. So like I'm vegan for the animals, but I'm also sustained by the fact that animal agriculture is arguably one like certainly in the top three worst industries you know and it also works in hand in glove with other industries that are super terrible for us and our planet so it's love of animals love of humanity love of our planet and for anyone that is in LA or going to visit LA I highly recommend Little Pine which is Moby's restaurant and the food is Delicious. How many times a week will you eat your own um, restaurant? I actually, maybe once a week. But the thing that makes Little Pine hopefully unique, I mean, we have good food. It's a wonderful place. But we give all our money, all our profits go to animal rights organizations. So it's, I actually run it as a, it's sort of like, it's more philanthropy than entrepreneurialism. But also that speaks to your entire life because you live a pretty philanthropic life. Yeah, I, I think it's because, going back to what we were saying, like, when I was a materialist, mm. I just didn't like it. Yeah. And like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had those like, like, and, and I know it, I don't want to sound like I'm in any way like humble bragging because I hopefully I'm not, but like those experiences where you're like, you're hung over on a private plane with other rock stars and models and you're like, wow, this is expensive. Yeah. And I don't like it. So mm. why am I doing it? Like, it's one thing to do stuff that you don't like that's not expensive. But like when you're like making a huge effort, like you're renting big hotel suites and you just spend your time like sitting in a chair, reading a book or checking text messages. You're like, why am I spending $10,000 a night on a hotel suite when I'm pretty happy just about anywhere? Right. You know, so. And, and I realized like trying to be, I don't know if I would, yeah, philanthropic or just having a purpose outside of myself just simply for me just makes me happier than being a selfish materialist mm. very inspiring well all i can say is just thank you so much for the stories that you shared um it has just been incredibly refreshing and healing for me to listen to you but also for everyone listening to this episode so to finish um would you mind finishing my sentences so it's okay. a little quick round I'm also still having a little bit of anxiety because, again, like, I, I'm the engineer for our <laughs> podcast. And as I said, like... How cool can I just say to everyone, I have Moby as the engineer to this podcast. <laughs> cool, unless I've done a very bad job, which is, like, 
I just hope that like the one microphone approach has been okay. <laughs> we'll take a photograph of this moment so you can see, but I think this is the new way to do it. It feels okay. very, you know, it's, it's a cozy chat. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I relax by. Doing anything that doesn't involve a screen. The last person I sent a text to was. Possibly you to let you know what my address was. My favorite dream is. A world wherein humans, and I know this sounds like a, a hippie dream, but it's really true. A world wherein humans stop destroying themselves, other creatures, and the only home that we have. The book I think everybody should read is. Oh, I really feel like such a like LA hippie cliche when I say this, but uh, like a collection of Sufi poetry. I really, I mean, I know that everybody has roomy quotes and memes and whatever, but like Sufi poetry, there's just like a playful, loving spirituality to it that I really love. I'm dying to have dinner with. Vladimir Putin, <laughs> to just ask him like, 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 what do you hope to accomplish? Like, 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 are you happy? What do you, why are you, why are you actively trying to destroy the world? Like, what's the end goal? If I could do it all again, I would. Do nothing different. I mean, everyone has regrets, everyone has resentments, but I've realized if you're like, if you're relatively happy or contented with the perspective that you have, you can't be unhappy with any of the things that have led you to have that perspective. And I'm really grateful for the perspective I have, so I can't, you know, like, how can you change even one aspect of your past when you like where you are in the present? Best piece of advice I was given is? Do more of what works, do less of what doesn't. My first thought in the morning usually is? This is the truth. How can I... Well, my first thought is usually, oh, I had another bad night sleeping because I'm a terrible sleeper. Mm -hmm. um, but then I usually think, like, how can I do God's will and be of service, especially be of service to animals? Before I go to sleep, I... Try to be grateful and try to sort of check in with where I am at that moment. Just recognizing like, okay, the lights are off. It's dark. It's quiet. I'm comfortable. My sheets are nice. Mm -hmm. My pillow is comfy. Sort of like checking in and having just sort of like mindful gratitude around that. When I'm feeling insecure, I... Uh, just acknowledge it. Don't try and change it. Sometimes, I mean, I can, you can, you can look for evidence to support the idea that the insecurity might not be justified, but it's simply just saying like, oh, it's there. If you really knew me, you would know. Pretty much everything we just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was so beautiful. Mm. Well, thank you so much. This, I have to say, was one of my most favorite chats I've ever had. And thank you for being so vulnerable and honest and sharing with you, well, with us. I've, I know I am speak for everyone who's listening. We've, we've learned so much. Oh, good. Thank you. I, and, well, assuming someone's listening, because I might have just completely screwed up as an engineer. <laughs> 
That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.